Ephemeral is a production of iHeartRadio. The history of American music in 12 seconds. Things that related directly to what we created as Americans that led up to our greatest musical contributions to the world. Old jazz, old blues, old gospel, old country. That's kind of America. That's one narrative. But the full story, like America itself, is much more complicated. And Ian Nagoski has something he'd like to add. My name is Ian Nagoski. I'm a music researcher and record producer near Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, a little bit more than a decade now, I've been doing reissue records of old stuff in languages that I don't speak. Through his label, Canary Records, Ian has reissued all kinds of forgotten treasures. Early American gospel, untraceable East Asian pop songs, recordings of wild birds, works that were almost forgotten, some stuff he's literally pulled out of garbage cans. But of all of his projects, one is the preeminent focus, songs of near and Middle Eastern immigrants in the United States. What I've been calling Ottoman diaspora music. Ottoman as in the Ottoman Empire, which, like the Soviet Union, is an entity that no longer exists, but exerted a powerful force on the tides of history. Disclaimer. Well, I have to say that I'm not a, uh, an Ottomanist historian, an academic, or anything like that. There's a, a lot that you could get wrong. It's like saying, so, what was ancient Rome? But the Ottoman Empire, roughly, was a huge swath of territory that expanded and contracted over about 500 years following the Byzantine Empire, which had succeeded the Roman Empire. It was founded by Turks, Turkic people from Central Asia, who had migrated into what is present-day Turkey, Anatolia. They wound up conquering all of Anatolia, then conquered upward through almost all the Balkans up to the Danube River in Mozart's grandparents' time. They were knocking on the doorstep of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Ottoman Empire then extended eastward all the way to Persia, southward along the Red Sea on both sides, Egypt down to Yemen, and then across almost all of North Africa. So a huge swath of, of the world around the Mediterranean and what's now the Middle East. And it continued for about 500 years. Starting in the early, mid-19th century, territory started falling away pretty fast. Greece won its independence and then more and more territories begin to secede, and the ethnic minorities are rising up in various ways. There become huge military problems for the empire, with the Russian Empire bearing down from the north. The First World War happens. There are a series of coups. There are huge financial debts. And the empire finally comes apart shortly after the First World War and becomes now what is just the present-day Republic of Turkey— and a number of other countries, Syria, Bulgaria, lots of places were Ottoman for a very long time. You might think you've never heard music from this distant land, or that if you had, you certainly couldn't hum a few bars of it. But you'd be wrong. The first commercial recordings in the Turkish language uh, occur under the aegis of M.G. Perzekian in 1912. But first recordings in Turkish and Arabic in the U.S. generally, occur at the Chicago World's Fair in 1897. 
at that World's Fair, there were a number of pavilions. There was a, a Turkish pavilion and an Egyptian pavilion and a Moroccan pavilion, for instance, so that people in Chicago could experience these cultures. And there were continuous performances of musicians and dancers. But the breakout hit from the Egyptian pavilion was a, a song that actually everybody in America probably knows, which is called The Streets of Cairo. It was written in New York by, I believe, Saul Bloom, Jewish Tin Pan Alley kind of songwriter. And everybody knows it because it goes... There's a place in France where the naked ladies dance. There's a hole in the wall where the boys can see it all. There's some variation of those lyrics that I think it's probably most everybody learned on the you know, school playground at some point. But that's where the melody comes from. It was the breakout hit of the... Turkish and Egyptian pavilions at the 1897 World's Fair and was what was danced to, what was then referred to as the Hoochie Coochie Dance by this dancer Little Egypt. The Hoochie Coochie Dance being what we now call belly dancing and wound up becoming shorthand for the entirety of the Middle East. Just a few bars of reference of that in a cartoon means it's from the Middle East somewhere. But the song itself, apparently, Bloom may have lifted or plagiarized a, a song that was probably goes back to Algeria. But uh, that's how it winds up coming into the American vernacular. And that was what Americans knew about Middle Eastern music for a long time. In an age of mass migration, the Statue of Liberty and Golden Gate Bridge became global beacons to folks searching for a new home. So as with immigrants from almost every other part of the world who were arriving the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, from all over the place, people are, are being driven by, you know, financial hope, the image of itself that America broadcasts to the world as a, a land of possibility. Meanwhile, back home, several other things are happening. Greece has serious financial trouble, the current crop fails, and there's just not a lot of money circulating around. So a young Greek man at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, in order to get married, needs some money. The place to go to get that money is the United States. Now that's a Greek man in Greece. A Greek man in present-day Turkey, in Anatolia, of which there were tens, hundreds of thousands, there was another concern, which is that as an Ottoman subject, previously as non-Muslims, as ethnic minorities, they had not been required to perform military service. Ottoman law changed, and there was forced conscription of the ethnic minorities. Lots of young Christian and, and Jewish men thought to themselves, no, absolutely not. There is no way that we, having been second-class citizens in particular for hundreds of years, are going to go fight your wars for you. It's out of the question. And so a lot of what happened was simply fleeing military conscription. So that's another thing. Then there are these conflicts at the end of the 19th century between the Ottoman military and the ethnic minorities, in particular with Armenians. There's a series of massacres that occur at the end of the 19th century where Armenians begin to get the idea that it is no longer tenable to remain under the Ottoman regime because you know, just thousands and thousands of people were being slaughtered by the military. So the Hamadian massacres, as they're referred to, drove a lot of Armenians in particular 
out of the country. So then, once you have a a certain baseline number of immigrants in the United States from a certain location, they begin building communities, actively trying to bring over more people. End of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century is this massive wave of immigration from all over the place. Around New York City, a thousand human beings a day were entering just through Ellis Island. In one city in America, a thousand people a day are coming in. And, true to form, a new population in America meant a new audience to sell stuff to. The record companies, particularly the two big record companies, Victor Records, later became RCA, later became BMG, later became Sony, and Columbia Records, later became Sony, two burgeoning record companies that are just growing exponentially year by year, are looking at all of this growth and going like, hey, I wonder if they buy any records, I wonder if we can sell them some stuff, you know? So they start trying to market records to the immigrants, and it works pretty quick. The first way that it works is to get material that was recorded by sister companies overseas and market it to the immigrants. That works. Then the record company's A&R men would try to scout out what they thought were talented people that the immigrants would want to hear because the record company execs think they know best. They think they know what people would want to hear. And it tends to be aspiring, classy kind of music. The people don't buy that stuff so much. What the immigrants mostly want to hear, as it turns out, is funky down-home stuff. Stuff that reminds them of good times and parties and, you know, the village and songs that are nostalgic and important to them from where they came from. The record companies finally get it through their heads. They finally start to realize what we really need to do here is go into the communities and ask, do you know anybody who plays like back home? And that stuff starts being recorded in the Manhattan recording studios, late teens, early 20s. And the people are buying it. The companies are making money. And for a while, everybody's happy. The first record ever made for an Arabic-speaking population in the United States was a recording for Victor Records from 1913 by a guy named Alexander Malouf. Malouf had already published a couple of pieces as sheet music. But in 1913, he, he makes a couple of sides for Victor. One is called A Trip to Syria, and the other is a performance called Al Jazair. A song that is still played in Turkey and Syria, actually. It's a very popular melody and seems to refer to military campaigns of the Ottoman Empire in Northwest Africa. And he's playing in a style that we recognize as being not dissimilar from ragtime, or for that matter, Debussy and French Impressionists. He was second generation. He was born in the U.S. And his entire career is marked to a great extent by this assimilation, this hybridization process, making a a music that is authentic to himself 
as both an American as a Syrian person. After he makes this record, he winds up starting his own record label, Malouf Records, which functioned out of Washington Street in uh, downtown Manhattan, what's now Tribeca. There was a strip of Washington that was called Little Syria for decades. And that's where all the Arabic-speaking people in Manhattan kind of were clustered together and had stores. Malouf's record label was not actually the only record label on that street. There was another guy, A.J. Maksud, who was a a copt from Egypt who had his own record label and put out superb, wonderful, beautiful sounding and looking discs in the 1920s. One of the kind of main musical denizens of Little Syria is an extraordinary violinist, a guy who recorded for a bunch of stuff in the the mid-teens for Columbia and then winds up going and recording as an accompanist on a whole bunch of stuff for A.J. Maksud's label. He was a guy born 1890 in Aleppo named Naim Karakhan. He winds up connecting with a guy named uh, Ahmed Abdul Malik, a bass player and a jazz musician. He was for a long time, including through most of the 50s, bass player for Thelonious Monk. Ahmed Abdul Malik gets this idea in his head that he wants to create a hybridized Near Eastern jazz. Ahmed Abdul Malik hires Naeem Karakhan, who is at this point well into his 60s, to record on a record in 1958. His last performance on record, absolutely tearing it up on violin, in the same way he did when he first starts recording 1912, 13, 14 for Columbia. Before coming to America, Naim Karakand may have studied with the father and teacher of one of his Syrian contemporaries, Samuel Chawa. Samuel Chawa was the most important violinist of the entire Arab world during the teens and 20s. And he's still well-remembered. There's a big retrospective box set that came out recently of, of Samuel Chawa. Samuel Chawa's repertoire is almost identical to Naim Karakand's. Like, their style and the actual tunes they play and the way they play them are very, very close. But the Arab world remembers Samuel Chawa. Nobody remembers Naeem Karakhan. Maybe the worst thing Naeem Karakhan could have done for the sake of posterity, for the sake of the memory of, of his talent, was move to the U.S. If he had just gone to Beirut or Cairo instead... There might be books on Naeem Karakand. There might be CD box set retrospectives. He went to a place that would never appreciate him. Uh, 
As the teens and 20s progressed on, immigrant artists were proving to be good business. But at the major labels, a xenophobic sentiment dictated the way these records were being branded. The record companies start up series in their catalogs. Columbia Records starts an E-series for ethnic. They later change it to the F-series for foreign, just as they had a series of, of what were called race records, which were records they were marketing to black folks. Anybody who's speaking a foreign language who isn't playing Western classical art music gets stuck within those catalogs, within that series, no matter whether they're playing some kind of like rural hillbilly music or whether they're classically trained rich person singing some fancy art music. Columbia and Victor have no idea which is which, basically. It's all just ethnic or foreign. Much of the material for these catalogs was produced at Columbia's New York studio inside the Woolworth building on Broadway. It was, at the time, the tallest building in the United States. Musicians could get in the elevator and go up to the recording studio, I believe on the 13th floor. It must have been very intense. The recording engineers had a system where they would show you a a colored card or a colored light to tell you when to begin. They would show you another colored card or another colored light to tell you when you had 30 seconds left to wrap it up for the end of the side. And then the color changes once again, and that's the end of the side. Because you can only fit about three minutes and 30 seconds tops onto a side of a disc. That's it. So you have to have pre-rehearsed and timed out the piece. Now, you know, a lot of these performers would play a piece for seven, eight, 12, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, a lot of these people are playing dance songs. You know, this is party stuff. Or maybe there were extra verses. You know, maybe the song goes on for, you know, six minutes. But you got three and a half. Do it or don't. And so you have to time out your performance beforehand and show up at the recording studio ready to do it. Immigrant performers were generally given one take, and that was it. Marika Papagika's Smyrnieko was recorded in July 1919 in that building. The Papagika record is extraordinary because she took three takes to do it. Very, very unusual. Don't know how or why that happened, but it certainly paid off. When you hear that first note that she sings, that doesn't come from nowhere. That's a note that somebody worked on. Why the company let her try it over and over? We don't know. Because everything else she recorded that day, she recorded in one take. 
She did record the same piece uh, seven months earlier for Victor Records, a few blocks away. That record actually sold better, circulated more. And copies of that are, are available a little bit, but they're not as good. Same performance, exact same arrangement. Everybody plays exactly the same note at the same time, but it doesn't have the thing. It doesn't have the fire. That Columbia version that she did, July 1919, of which, to the best of my knowledge, less than five copies exist now of that record. It did not sell. Marika Papagika was somebody who overtly attempted to cross over into kind of like a hybridized, mainstream, Americanized style. And she recorded a bunch of material, not with a traditional Turkish or Greek style band, but with a pop orchestra, including some stuff that mentions like having your hair bobbed or ironing your hair or, you know, Americanized things, cars and electricity stuff that was new for immigrants. She was actively attempting to appeal to an Americanized sense among Greeks, a sense of being assimilated into American culture. One of the people that she was involved with was a, a record producer at Victor Records. He ran their foreign and ethnic series for a while. His name was Tetos Dimitriades. He had a great ear, new talent, and stayed in the record business for decades and decades and decades. Dimitriades was a young guy from Constantinople. He was Greek and very cosmopolitan in his view of music. A real lover of music, I think. He was himself a singer. Not a great singer, but serviceable. Perfectly fine. He was a nice-looking guy. But his big hit record, which he re-recorded several times and republished as sheet music and, you know, really milked as much as he could, was a song that really took the public imagination for decades, called Miserlu, which means Little Egyptian Girl. He recorded it first in 1927. Well, it becomes a song that's played by klezmer bands in the 40s and 50s. And it winds up being performed by singers of the classic American songbook with new lyrics in English. Desert shadows creep across purple sand. And then, you know, it winds up being covered by Dick Dale and the Deltones, for one, and eventually used as a theme song for the movie Pulp Fiction. So Dimitriades' interest in Americanizing Greek music winds up happening in this way that he never could have predicted. Now, 
it's been pointed out that Dick Dale's uncle was an oud player and that his surf guitar style of this, you know, fluttering kind of right-hand picking technique was most likely derived in some way from his uncle's oud playing. And that surf guitar, the ventures and all that kind of stuff comes partially from exposure to immigrants from the Near East, Lebanese and, and Armenian players in particular, Lots and lots of them in California. Fresno was largely built by Armenians. So why can these records be so hard to find now? Well, in the first place, they weren't necessarily minted in vast quantities. A good-selling ethnic or foreign record in the 19-teens or 20s is selling 300 to 3,000 copies, roughly. You know, 3,000 is quite good. 300 is a bit disappointing. There are certainly examples on the books of records that only sold 12 copies or 30 copies or something. But the records that were produced have a long shelf life due to their composition, of which shellac is not the main ingredient. They're made of about 10 to 15% shellac. What they're mostly made of, the records, is about 80% ground stone. Then there's added to that, you know, some carbon black, so they're uniformly black, so you've got a, a consistent-looking product. Some cotton fiber as binder. But they're basically stones. They will last for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years if they're not worn out by being played or if they're not abused or neglected. They'll last a very, very long time, much, much longer than you or me or anybody who will ever remember us. The conditions that made these recordings so rare, that confluence of factors, again, gets tangled in questions of American identity. Okay. Grandma and Grandpa came from the old country and they accumulated a little stack of this old country music that they would listen to sometimes when they were feeling nostalgic or at parties or something. Mom and Dad grew up in this house, and they heard those records sometimes. But it's not their music. They were Americans. They grew up with American music and tried to be more American, and they didn't really connect with the music. Now, Grandma and Grandpa died, and they left behind these records, and the records stuck around in the attic or the basement. And then Mom and Dad are getting up there, and now we got to find a thing to do with these records. So what do you do? You've seen Antique Roadshow. You know there's such a thing as people who like this old stuff. They're antiques. They're antiques, right? Somebody wants these. So you go, you find yourself a, a nerd. You go find yourself a record collector. Not easy to do, but there he is. He shows up, he looks through your records, and he goes, yeah, it's not really what I'm looking for. I don't collect foreign actual line from the movie Ghost World. I don't, I don't really collect foreign. That's what they all said for 70, 80, 90 years. I don't collect foreign. Nobody did. What record collectors collected was stuff that had to do with the story of America. Country, blues, jazz, gospel. And so that's what the 78 collectors were looking for. But the immigrant stuff, the ethnic stuff... The record collector is standing there in your living room with your grandparents' records in his hand, and he hands them back to you, and he goes, sorry, there's nothing here I can use. Really? Dollar a piece? No, sorry. It's just, I, don't, I don't think anybody wants these. So then what happens to them? 
well, you throw them away. They're junk. If that guy doesn't want them, nobody wants them, right? Maybe you try them on eBay. Not many people buying them on eBay, you know? It's hardly worth boxing them up for, you know, a dollar or two apiece. It's this broader cultural sense of America as American culture doesn't include all this stuff that happened in foreign languages or in vernacular foreign ideas that has led to the the scarcity of the records because there just hasn't been a a broader conversation about the value of them. There hasn't been a a guess culturally that, that they matter. So they get thrown in the garbage. Rescuing a work before it gets thrown in the garbage is, of course, only the first step. These records come laden with questions, and even the most dogged, diligent research sometimes leads to a dead end. Some of these people I've been able to dig up biographical information. I've been able to get a sense of who they were and what they accomplished and what their lives were like, where they were from, at least when they were born and when they died or something. This is a guy, for instance, that I I don't think we'll ever really know anything that much about. He made a few dozen records for both Columbia and Victor in the 19-teens, and then he just vanishes. No idea where he went. We don't know where he came from, and we probably never will. The name that he uses on the labels of the records is the reason we won't know. The name is Kemani Minas. Minas is just a real common last name, and Kemani is just an honorific. It just means very good violinist. So there's really kind of no way to look up a guy like that. This is his masterpiece. This is his best performance. They're all good. He never made a bad record, but this is the great one. record from uh, 1917 that's a description of the destruction of the village of Agen. Egan was way out in eastern Turkey near the river Euphrates, and Egan was systemically destroyed. A third of the population was killed, and half of the homes were burned by the Ottoman government as part of the Hamadian massacres in direct retaliation for the political action of the Armenian Revolutionary Federation. This song is a direct account 
remembered by our Armenian immigrants to the United States of that tragedy. It's a superb performance, one of the most wonderful vocal performances I've ever heard in my life. And the record sold like absolute hotcakes. I mean, thousands and thousands of copies. It's an incredibly easy record to get, and it's worth almost nothing. I think you'd probably get like a beautiful copy on eBay right now for like 10 bucks. But it's a jewel. It's a real masterpiece. And we'll never know who he was. Not every track that Canary has reissued qualifies as rare. For instance, one disc that's abundantly available paints a biting portrayal of life in the U.S., One of the very first records in Turkish that I ever bought was a record called Nedim Gedim Amerikaya. I'm pronouncing that wrong. I pronounce everything wrong because I only speak English. I've owned maybe seven, eight copies of this record over the years. Like, you find it all over the place. The first one I bought was 50 cents, and I don't think I've paid much more for one since then. It turns up all over the place. It was made in 1926 for Columbia, uh, it's a 12-inch disc, meaning it was $1.25 at the time. A much more expensive record. And must have sold tens of thousands, potentially 100,000 copies. Probably to every Turkish-speaking household in the United States at the end of the 1920s. The guy who made it was a Greek guy from northwest present-day Turkey. His name was Achilles Poulos. He was a good oud player. Uh, he was a party guy. Every Pulos story includes some amount of drinking and boozing. Pulos and his wife owned a, a little nightclub around 41st and 8th Avenue. And during Prohibition, they got shut down by the cops for selling booze. The cops shut down the place and throw Pulos in the tombs for a couple of nights. He gets out, opens up another place exactly catacorner, and goes right back to doing what he was doing. <laughs> But it was a place where you could go in, you could get a coffee cup full of booze and listen to a guy play songs from home. Achilles Poulos's biggest hit was this song, Nedim Gedim Amerikaya, which means why I came to America. It seems to be his own lyrics to a, uh, an older traditional song that he knew. And the song is about regretting the choice to have come to the United States. Oh, cruel, why do you make us suffer? I wish I never came, never saw. Is uh, part of what he sings in it. Oh, America. 
Poulos records prolifically 125 songs in about five years. And then the Depression hits, 1930, and he just disappears. He's just gone. There's just no more Achilles Poulos records. Just strange for somebody who sold so many records and seemed to be have been so popular. And so the story circulated that he had been ratted out to immigration services for having made this record, for having made something so disrespectful to America. America was deporting a lot of people in the 20s for almost any reason. It wasn't hard to trump up something to make you look like a criminal and send you back on your way. The story circulated for decades that that's what happened to Poulos. Well, as I began looking into Poulos a little bit more, it turns out, no, he didn't go back to Turkey. He went somewhere else. He went to Connecticut. Went to work for a coffee roaster. And he's buried there. He died there in the 1970s. Apparently, he had arthritis. And it got hard to play. And I think the drinking thing didn't help. So we only get about five years of Achille Poulos' life on record, unfortunately. Including this, like, monster, monster hit. It's one of the most important commentaries on immigrant life in America at the time, I think. In many of these performances, the lyrics course with anxiety and fear. In the 1920s, that was, in some part, reflective of mounting changes in U.S. immigration policy. For a very long time in the United States, there simply were no laws restricting immigration. If you can make it, you're in. End of the 19th century is the Chinese Exclusion Act. The United States specifically decides There's a group of people we don't like and we don't trust and we don't think are part of us, and we're not letting any more of them in. Most of America was behind that idea, opened a huge can of worms. In 1924, the U.S. government passed the Johnson-Reed Act, which established quotas based on nation of origin in immigration. The quotas were basically set up so that America would stay percentage-wise exactly the color of white that the nation had been 50 years earlier. The same percentage of Germans, the same percentage of English, the same percentage of Irish to maintain a particular racial profile for the country. From 1924 onward, lots of Scandinavians were allowed, lots of Germans, lots of English, lots of French, fewer Italians, fewer Poles, very few Syrians, Greeks, Turks, no one from Africa, and no one from Asia. Period. For four decades, that remained the situation for immigrants in the United States. It's not that they couldn't have come, it's that we said, we don't want our country to look like that. And the result for people who had come from the Ottoman Empire was that their families couldn't come anymore. And it broke families up. America, 
This is a record made about 1926-27 thereabouts called Uske Gukas, which means, where do you come from? It was recorded for the Pharos Record Company by a guy named uh, Nishan Kiljekian, who was a land surveyor for the city of Medford. He didn't record very much, but he did make this one, I think, very important record because it is, as far as I know, the only Armenian record that directly protests something. And what it's directly protesting is the Johnson-Reed Act, the problem of Armenian families being separated by immigration quotas. But there is no singular experience, verified by just how eclectic emigre catalogs could be. There were songs of hardship, songs of protest, and nihilistic party songs. Another performer that I've been looking into specifically as a personality and as a biography is Edward Bogosian, uh, Yedvard Bogosian. Bogosian was like a good time guy, a fun guy, party guy. Kind of a drunk uncle type, I guess you could say. He was born 1900 in uh, Constantinople, arrives in the U.S. uh, and tours around as a comedian. He's a clown. There's a stage show where he sings funny, almost dirty songs. Some of his songs are things about, like, gambling and, like, don't trust your husbands and, you know, uh, stuff about people manipulating each other for immigration status, you know, all kinds of, you know, fun, cynical kind of stuff. Starts recording for Pharaoh's Records in the 20s, goes silent through the Depression, and starts recording again in the early 40s for a little independent company that was marketing records to Greek, Turkish, Arabic, Albanian, Ladino-speaking Immigrants. Remember, this is almost 20 years after the Johnson-Reed Act. These are people who barely remember home. These are people for whom, you know, the past is back there a ways. And this song was his biggest hit. It was a massively popular song uh, called Sude Sude. And the lyrics basically go, you know, you can't trust anybody in this life. Don't believe what people tell you. Me, I like to eat. I like to drink booze. I like to have a good time. Kef is the word. It means stoned in Turkish, but in Armenian it basically just means like laid back, relaxed times. Kef.
And then comes the big sing-along chorus. Sude, 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 sude. Which means in English, it's fake, it's fake, it's fake, it's fake. Everything is fake. Armenian buddy of mine, when I first told him that I was interested in this song, he goes like, ay, you know, come on. He's like, look, if you're like me and you go to a lot of Armenian events, it's like Hava Nagila. You know, it's a cliche. Like, I'm so used to hearing drunk uncles playing this song. But for such a cliche, there are no copies of this record online. You can't go hear this record unless you have a 78 of it. That's it. It hasn't circulated in 70 years almost. And it's a massive, great hit song of its time. Do you feel kind of like a, uh, a gatekeeper holding these personal stories? I'm not keeping them. I'm trying to get rid of them as fast as I can. I have taken them on and have tried to learn them in as much detail and, and to be able to tell them as best I can. But I don't want to have to keep them. They belong to other people more than they do to me. Please do something with them because I won't be here all that long. And the stories and the ideas and the performers and the performances, those have got to stay for a while. Longer than me, hopefully. The last artist we'll play here is the first I heard from the Canary Collection, and indeed my introduction to this sliver of history, this moment that time forgot. The voice of Zabel Panosian haunts me. It haunts Ian, as it has haunted countless more. Zabel Panosian recorded only uh, about a dozen performances over the course of about a year in 1916, 1917. Isabel Panosian was born in uh, northeastern Anatolia, immigrates, comes through France, and then comes to the U.S., where she settles uh, in Boston. She is classically trained, performs with the short-lived Boston Opera Company, winds up making this series of records for Columbia in New York in the teens. And then she tours around for some years in the United States, raising money for the Near East Relief Campaign the first massive philanthropic project in the United States, raised millions and millions and millions of dollars for people who were suffering in Turkey and Syria. Then she winds up touring all over Europe for a couple of decades, really, and is a huge star, playing all these fancy opera houses. She comes back to the U.S., basically becomes a, a quiet private citizen. None of her kids have kids, so she has no direct descendants. There are still living nieces and nephews who never knew that their aunt was a musician at all. But she recorded one of the definitive Armenian songs of the first part of the 20th century, a record that tore people's hearts out and sold like crazy for decades.
The song is called Grunk, means crane. It's a melody that she actually remembers from childhood. And she seems to have basically composed and arranged this song herself. The reason it was such a, a huge hit in the U.S. was that the lyrics are basically, Crane, do you have any news from home? Please don't run back. There'll be enough time. I want to know what's happening back home with my people. That's the basic gist of the lyrics. The conflicts between Armenians and the Turkish Ottoman government had escalated to a point where the Turkish government had decided to simply solve the problem, and they did so in this systemic way. The Ottoman government had rounded up a million, million and a half Armenians out of their villages and begun marching them southward into the Syrian desert where they died of famine, thirst, exposure. It was the first genocide of the 20th century. It, it was the event for which the term genocide was invented. Armenians who were in the United States, therefore, were in a situation where they were desperate for news about home. Not only had the government confiscated their homes, their land, their rugs, their money, whatever they'd left behind, also, to their great horror, reports began coming in that everyone they ever knew was dead. And there was no home to go back to anymore. There simply was nowhere left that was home. Nothing that they remembered could ever be repeated. And almost everybody you knew was gone. So, Grunk was the perfect distillation of that horror and sorrow and desperation of being stranded as an Armenian in the United States immediately after the genocide. Genocide is... 1914, 1915, 1916, record comes out, 1917.
Now, this record was, a, again, a huge hit, sold thousands of copies. When I first encountered it, about 2010, I'd never heard of it or her. And there was nothing to find out. There was nobody to ask. The record had never been written about once by anybody in any book. There wasn't such a thing as a Bell Pinozian in cultural memory. So I began looking and looking and looking, and then a couple of buddies of mine got interested and joined in. And they wound up turning up a bunch of Armenian language newspapers and magazines and stuff from the old days that did include some details. And so gradually we've gotten a, a full picture of Zabel's life, and we're going to be able to tell her whole story of who she was and what she accomplished. It's really just because these records stick around and because they're made of stone. And it mattered immensely that this song continued to live. I couldn't understand how it could have been forgotten for so long. Somehow, having this woman's voice as an American immigrant, as a refugee, I think it matters to America that she gets to be heard. I think it matters to music students that they should know that this song exists. Might change how they think about themselves. Remember, Zabel's records were made and marketed as ethnic records. These were not marketed as red-label classical records for fancy people. But they are. She may have been, I think, seriously discouraged by the fact that she was ghettoized as, a, as an immigrant, as an ethnic performer. Maybe that's one of the reasons she didn't record anymore in the U.S. We don't know. Working it out. The stories of these performers' lives, the brief glimpses we've been afforded, like the songs themselves, have a timeless quality. But the lessons are perhaps more relevant than ever. There are certainly forces in America right now that are attempting to limit the definition of Americanness. That includes American creativity. And they're using a skewed version of history and a skewed sense of American identity to do it. If all you know about America and the history of immigration to this country over the past 100 years is this tiny little bit of images and ideas that you get in a, a kind of public education, you'll be easily swayed. So I think it's extremely important, just generally, for Americans to look honestly and, and clearly at, at who we are and what we've done. The fact of the matter is it's... It's kind of great. It's a lot of fun. And I don't know that much about history. I'm not the best read person in the world. What I do know is that music is great. Music is always really, really, really good. And whenever anybody's playing music, they're not doing anything wrong. They're only doing something right. To look at American music 
and what American musicians have accomplished is also always good and always a pleasure. It's the reverse of the kind of oppression and the kind of uh, fear and anger that we see bubbling around in the, in the culture. Records are great. I really like old records a lot. Yeah, man, me too. Ephemeral is written and assembled by me and produced by Annie Reese, Matt Frederick, and Tristan McNeil with technical assistance from Sherry Larson. Our hat's off to Ian Nagoski for doing extraordinary work and for being so generous with his time. This conversation was inspired by the compilation To What Strange Place, the music of the Ottoman American diaspora. You can find it, all these songs, and more at canary-records.bandcamp.com and a little something about us at ephemeral.show. Visit us on the World Wide Web and interact with us on social media at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs>